This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Special presentation today. Today is a panel discussion. This is the third in the series of panel discussions. This one is on infilling your mobile home park, bringing in mobile homes which is obviously key to valuation, key to maximizing the asset, maximizing the, the uh, communities for our residents, for our investors, for just for everybody. But it's a pretty uh, pretty messy process. Lots of pros and cons. Got an expert panel today. All these guys have experience doing this and, and they all have kind of a side experience as well that I'm sure we'll touch on as well. So I'll let them introduce themselves. But briefly, we've got Andrew Keel, Stephen Blank, and Colbin Bubis. Thanks, guys. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what's your favorite thing about bringing in mobile homes to one of your communities? Yeah, thanks for having us on. Uh, I'm Andrew Keel. We own and operate 33 communities and uh, we're growing uh, as well. We love infill because of the forced appreciation, you know, the uh, ability to add value. It's, it's a harder way to add value, but, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly simple to sell the homes once we get them on the lots and get them ready to go. Good deal. Steven, you want to go next? Yeah, uh, Stephen Blank, the president of Blank Family Communities. We uh, operate 50 communities, around 5,000 units uh, in 10 states. And yeah, like Andrew said, the best part about bringing in homes is adding value to both the community, to the residents, and to the ownership of the communities. All right, great. Coleman? Yeah, Coleman Bubis. I'm a, a predominantly a broker in space, been brokering mobile home parks since 2004. And, um, you know, love the business so much. I had to buy a few small communities for myself to kind of really further the uh, education on the space. Love that it's really the last true market rate, affordable housing without subsidies. And as far as bringing in homes, these guys really nailed it. Um, you know, the, the dynamic of bringing in new homes, used homes to upgrade the community, provide uh, much needed, you know, attainable housing and uh, really drive, you know, cash flow. To, uh, valuation of the community from you know a refinance or sale perspective good points guys yeah I, I would i would agree with that i mean from my end i like to buy parks with lots of vacancy as well because as, as andrew mentioned especially you know, you can really force the appreciation of the park and it's not by just cutting amenities and it's not by jacking up the rates it's by adding more affordable housing and really this is the only asset class you could pull that off and I love it just being on site when this happens because the enter it's kind of fire drill as we'll talk about, but you know, moving cars and directing traffic and not running over the paper boy and all that stuff. But it's cool the first time you bring a home into a community, especially a community that has been basically ignored for 20 years because it's like people coming out of the woodwork. And so I always like to be there for the first one. It's like, I didn't know there were this many children in this park. I don't mean this many adults in this park. Like it's like everyone's got a pretty boring life watching cops right now. And then they see this massive trailer come in and it's like, all right, something cool is going down. And of course it's loud and, um, and big and, you know, it's kind of just chaos, but it's, it's chaos for the common good. And that's always, that's always fun. So that's one of my favorite things about it, bringing them in. What would you guys say, maybe go, go in reverse order here and start with Coleman. What, what do you guys say is the hardest thing about bringing in mobile homes to a community? Well, I think, uh, of all the things that you do in owning and operating a community, bringing in homes is uh, is probably, frankly, the hardest. Right? Collecting rent is pretty simple. Bookkeeping the rent with a decent software, pretty easy. You know, where do you even start? And I think the best place to start is with the, the huge mistake and maybe a little story. But the first home that I ever bought for a small park that I own, um, you know, I didn't really know what size home to get. You know, is it going to fit on the lot? what are the setbacks? And um, truthfully, the home that I bought was probably too large for the lot. And, um, you know, luckily it was in a place where the setbacks weren't as stringent as other places. So I really do think it is probably the hardest part about, uh, you know, adding value to a community is figuring out, you know, what home goes on what lot, 
you know, whether it's new or used, does it fit, does it meet the setback requirements in the local municipality? How do you get it set? Where do you get the home from? I mean, it creates a million questions that if you haven't done it, it, um, you know, sometimes you got more uh, more guesses than right answers. So it's it really is a, an art in itself. And I do think it's the hardest part to scale and uh, to really kind of execute on well. Stuff, Stephen, you want to go? Go ahead, man. Yeah. Um, so the besides all of the the compliance and actually physically getting the home in there, it's you know getting the right resident in the right home. So you know traditionally this industry has always been about selling houses, and that's what you know the the earliest mobile homes were more equated to parking lots, right? Um, where now that has just continued to evolve and evolve, and now with homes especially getting you know more expensive and more people wanting to rent, it's you know, what do I want to implement? How many houses do I want to sell versus how many houses I want to rent? And for us with doing this in so many different states, uh, it's keeping up with the municipalities, all the different compliance and the different type of infrastructures in the communities. So it's not all cookie cutter like what Coleman was just talking about. It is, you know, what type of, how are my water sewer hookups going to go? Like what, how's the electric pedestal and what is the infrastructure getting plugged into? Um, can this water system handle uh, 20 new homes, you know, using water and sewer? Um, so all of those things, you know, baked into, into one. Uh, and as you said, like just the fire drill of these homes are, are coming in and dealing with things on the fly as they come up. Agreed. Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of factors like on the construction side of things, you know, dealing with the different contractors and making that orchestra play nicely uh, all at once. Uh, but the hardest part right now, I think, is the inventory. You know, not just used homes, but also new homes. You know, we have an order of 44 homes that is like eight months out. Like we can't even get the homes from the factories brand new. And usually the, the new homes are more reliable because you're like, OK, I'm going to order them and then they're going to be here on this day. Well, then a month before you get a call from the sales rep and he's like, hey, sorry, we're, we're going to be another couple of months out. So you're trying to like, you know, match a pro forma and it's like you're, you're trying to hit a moving target. So I think that's part of it. And then also used homes have become more desirable right now because of the backlog in the new homes. So I would say inventory is, is the big thing for us right now, Ferd. No, that's, that's a great, that's a, definitely a more of a recent supply chain issue, but yeah, same thing. I mean, Clayton and True have been really given allocations the last couple of years, last year and a half or two, where it used to be, yeah, you just order them, they show up however many days out, hour oh, 40 days out. Okay. Or we're 60 days out. No big deal. I call my sales rep like, Hey, I bought 20 of these from you. I need, I need five more. And he's like, Ferd, I got guys that buy a hundred at a time and I can't get them a home. You're, you're not even in the ballpark of being important enough for me to get you a home. And then I know, so champion, I talked to a guy who buys 500 a year from champion. He's just like, I could have 10 homes tomorrow delivered in my park because I buy 500 a year and I have for 20 years. So I just tell them to butt me in front of line and they do. And he's like, that's why I don't buy from the other manufacturer. Cause they make me wait in line. Like I'm one of you guys, you know, and he's kind of said it like, it's kind of said it like that. I was like, so that is a, that is another yeah hard part about infill is the unknown. And there are lots of guys and I've got lots of clients that I see this on, like their pro forma, I'm like your performance is blown up because you just based, you just budgeted infill of three a month. And you're looking at a big zero for 24 months. So that's going to, especially if you're a sponsor or syndicator, that's going to blow up your splits, it's gonna blow up your yield. It could be a big problem. Um, other problems, and you guys have all mentioned the good ones. Other problems, I always had a problem with, in one park in particular, is parking. It's just bringing the homes in. There's, I didn't have the space to move all the cars. So I'd put notes on everybody's door. Don't park on this section today. And if it's in the back of the park, I got to block off like, because of the turns, it's a 76 foot home. I got to block off like 50 parking spaces. I only have 10 extra parking spaces. So of course people don't comply. So at the beginning, I could let people park in the grass on the vacant lots. But every time I brought on a home, there was one less vacant lot. And then it just became a continual fight with everybody. I'm going to tow your car. And then they're like, no, you're not. You're not going to tow 15 cars this morning. And they got two tow trucks ready to rock. So it was just communication um, with the residents and, and really saying, leave your keys in the car and we'll move them around, you know, quickly. And, and that was, um, that was a challenge that I didn't expect. 
I guess I should have noticed, but I, I didn't expect how hard it was going to be on game day when I got a guy with a 76 foot home behind him. And he's saying, look, I'm going to drop it right here unless you can move all these cars. I'm like, you can't drop it there. Cause then I'll never be able to get it to the back. Um, so that was, a, that was, a, that was a surprise. Um, Andrew brought up supply chain. Um, Steven, you, you see, you've seen this in lots of States and for lots of your guys' clients, how are, how are they dealing with that? And are you involved in that process with, with your clients or is that more on the ownership side as, as the third party manager? In a lot of instances, are you running point or are you not involved and, and, and are you able to leverage any uh, relationships, if you will, due to the, the reach of your organization? Yeah. So that's actually a, a big point of value that we can bring because we've been purchasing houses for, for a number of years and before, before my company, my family-owned community. So we've had a long-standing relationship with Champion. So currently, as it's slated, we're we're set to get 300 houses from a single manufacturer this year. Um, but those were ordered, uh, you know, three to six months ago in some cases to to ensure that they were going to get here. And as everybody knows, we have no idea if they're actually going to make it in, you know, and the time. Um, but as soon as I I outstretch my you know, reputation, let's say, uh, in, you know, more in the Texas area or in Florida, then I've got no pull anywhere. And then it's being, being put in line where people are telling me, you know, call me in 23, because we're not going to be able to get you houses. Um, but in the Midwest, where we're centrally focused, we've been able to get houses for everybody. And it was all by bundling them into one organization under blank family communities, instead of each person individually trying to get them. Great stuff. Coleman, you Coleman, you mentioned your first home, and I've had some similar experiences where, you know, you got to shoehorn the home in just right. And as we all know, a sixteen by seventy six sells a little better than a sixteen by sixty six. So you you can put a bigger home in. You generally want to. What do you look at during your due diligence process um, from either setbacks and or vacant vacant lots and and just kind of order of magnitude of and an order of priority for infill. Are there any, any tips you can give us on that? I know from the broker side, you see tons of deals across your desk. What are you getting questions from smart buyers um, that are helping influence that process? Yeah, we're abs we're absolutely getting uh, questions from, you know, buyers, small, big and uh, above in terms of if there is vacancy, how am I going to fill it? Obviously sixties vintage communities, much smaller seller sites and, and to your point, Bird, certain homes work better in certain markets. So then you add on the layer of complexity of, you know, in different states, there's different set requirements for new homes where, you know, Stephen and I are sitting in uh, Illinois, Michigan and HUD regulated states for bringing in new homes and HUD sets. It becomes a huge additional, you know, cost and requirement to comply with that for a new home. Whereas, you know, in Texas or other, you know, other areas, Tennessee, et cetera, where the frost line is much uh, higher, you don't have the same kind of set regulations. So I think the smart buyers are looking at the size of the sites. They're looking at the in-place utilities. You know, is uh, is is the all the electrical 50 amp where a modern home is 100 or 200 amp electrical? Uh, are these homes that require natural gas? Are they heated by propane? Are they all electric homes for for AC and heat? And then to your point, Bird. You know, I think most smart buyers or operators, you know, you work with what you've got. The, you know, the community is what it is. But from a, a maximization standpoint, you know, I was always I always heard and was taught you want to maximize the size of the home that's going on any given site to try to get the most interior square footage for for your customers. Um, those are kind of some some basic comments that come come to mind in terms of what people are looking at when they're really analyzing their communities or an acquisition or a sale. Great points, great points. Andrew, do you have anything you want to supplement on that as far as what you guys look at in DD? And, that, and also maybe touch on some of the stuff you've done with having transport kind of in-house to kind of mitigate some of these this risk. I mean, Stephen mentioned in, in detail the, the risk, of, you know, from the manufacturer standpoint, but a bigger problem I've been having this year, I've been doing mostly used homes this year for the reason, same reason of manufacturer delay. The bigger problem I'd have with used homes is finding reliable guys that have trucks and that have licensure and that can install them properly. So you've got, I have a toter truck that came with my parks. So I considered just building out my own transport team. And we put a lot of work into underwriting that business and business plan. And then it really didn't want to do it. It was like, we, we, we may do it out of necessity. 
And then we found a guy and he moved 11 houses for us in the last 20 days. They've been sitting there for months, used homes, like, and he's ready to rock. Like, we're like we'll put us on your calendar, you know, every third Monday, we'll have, we'll find one, we'll keep you busy. Um, so we found a guy that's willing to do that and can cross two or three state lines, but it was a hundred phone calls to get this guy. And, and if he gets hit by a bus or a trailer, then, you know, I got to go back to the drawing board because the guys that I have used in the several previous several years, they're not picking up the phone anymore because some of the, one of them told me straight up that one of the top five operators, I won't mention them because I'm kind of mad at them, but the top five operators said, we're going to pay you a thousand dollars extra for every move, but you have to give us the next hundred anytime we ask and they keep asking. So he's like, I'm like, I paid you like $200,000 in the last year and you're not going to pick up my phone call. He's like 200,000 is nothing compared yeah. to these other guys. So I've learned that I've learned that from a transport issue. So I know you've solved some of that riddle. So I want to know your opinion on that riddle, as well as piggyback on some of Coleman's comments on DD uh, outlook. Yeah, definitely. On the mobile home transporter side of things, we realized pretty early on that that was one of the major pain points for us is we were, you know, putting our deal at risk because we were depending upon these third parties to bring homes in. And like you said, you can make 100 phone calls and 99 of them are going to be with somewhat unsophisticated business people that are, you know, chucking a truck that has been toting mobile homes for, you know, 20 years at his own pace. So we decided to get a toter truck. Uh, one of I, I I really lucked into it because I think it's heavily about the driver. You know, it's I don't consider it a very scalable business. It's not like I would want to go out and buy twenty toter trucks. I think it's very dependent upon who's going to be driving that truck because you you have a lot of liability with this. So you really want to make sure you got the right guy behind the wheel. Um, but one of our on-site managers, her husband, uh, toted huge boats around, like huge yachts around the country. And then after that, he toted around large pieces of concrete out of St. Louis all, all across the country. So that was what he did. Uh, he already had his CDL and everything. So when we brought him into hauling mobile homes around, it was somewhat natural. So that's, that's kind of how we you know, went about the business. And then also, we had a couple huge infill projects that needed you know, over 50 homes brought in. And uh, where in the beginning, we thought we were going to start toting for third parties and then use them for our projects as needed. Well, it turned in that he, he only moves for us now because we've just kept him busy and we'll just get him licensed in the different states uh, as needed to help us with the installations as well. So it's definitely helped us expedite some of our, our pro forma timelines that we had for infill. Uh, but it is, you know, it, it is a stressful part of the business, making sure your permits are correct, making sure you can cross state lines and uh and so forth but to piggyback on the due diligence side of things one of the things that coleman brought up is making sure the utilities uh are on the vacant lots are ready for a home you know like before the home gets there right because when the home gets there it's much harder to snake a sewer line it's much harder to you know make sure the water uh valve is is not all rusted and falling off once there's a home sitting on top so we try to spend a lot of time on the vacant lots before there's a home sitting on top of it to make sure that those things are in order so that it's a lot easier to change a valve, you know, on a, on a water riser when there's not a home there. Same thing, snake a sewer line from when little kids went by and stuck rocks down them. Uh, so that's just one of the things we spend a lot of time on. Good stuff. So based on this topic here of infill, um, we probably have a biased panel, but do you guys prefer buying projects that require lots of infill? Obviously, there's more upside that, or do you prefer stabilized but just also do infill? Or do you guys balance a different mix in your portfolio so as to balance the the workload and or the, the risk profile? Steven, you want to you want to yeah. give us your sense on that? Uh, everybody everybody knows that the market is just going crazy right now, and even the you know, it used to be, you know, a few years ago, even that you could buy a community that was stabilized and then increase the value of that community by just increasing rates. But now everybody knows what rates should be. So that that ability is becoming less and less. So the greatest ability that everybody has is to take, you know, the value addition through occupancy. So in the majority of deals that we look at, uh, and especially with help clients with due diligence, it's, you know, look, yeah, your return's not what it, what you want it to be right now with the sale price. You're not going to talk down the sale price of this community because you're going to have five other people that are willing to buy this community. 
you know, but what we can do is, you know, get the return that you want through infilling homes still. And that's really aside from, you know, in increasing the value through adding amenities, you know, cleaning up some glaring, you know, compliance issues or safety issues, it is still the best way to get a good return. Got it. Coleman, you want to touch on that? And then also, I'm curious your opinion on the current state of the market as to how much people are paying for upside for vacant lots. I know most of us in the industry went to Frank and Dave's boot camp at some point along the line. And he always taught, don't pay for the vacant lots. Vacant lots were zero. Obviously, the marketplace in the last two years doesn't think a vacant lot is worth zero. A vacant lot is potentially worth 50000 depending on the, the, the NOI of a particular lot. And as such, some people will pay 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 1,000 per vacant lot for the opportunity to turn it into a 50. So I'm curious on, on your opinion on that as well, because I know you see a lot of deals, um, especially on your broker side. Yeah, I will, uh, I'll answer that question first, because, um, you know, in 2007, 8, 9, 10, when the market was kind of crashing and there was no liquidity and there was really less liquidity for actual homes than there was communities, uh, you know, vacant lots were definitely, you know, in some cases a liability, right? You have to cut, they're more expensive. You got to cut the grass on those. You got to do all these other things to keep the community looking nice and weren't given a lot of value. And to your point, the market today is very different for, for several reasons, you know, and I'll caveat that with the value of a vacant lot is, is very much market by market in the middle of nowhere where there's no jobs and, and whatnot, a vacant lot might still be worth zero or 5,000 or $10,000 a lot. Um, you know, if there's vacancy in uh, Austin, Texas, um, you know, I think you start to look at uh, valuation metrics that are used in a lot of other businesses like replacement costs. Um, and that really comes down to, you know, land has value. And certainly to Andrew's previous point, right? If the utility infrastructure is in on a site where you've got good water lines, good sewer lines, good uh, electrical lines in, and it's a market where there's demand for housing, um, you start to look at those not on a, you know, capitalized, capitalized lot rent basis, but in some ways a replacement cost basis, because there is new communities being built now. Um, and you know, it costs dollars to get those, those utility lines into the ground. So there absolutely is value being attributed to vacant lots, especially in markets where an operator is capitalized to buy new homes and fill with newer used homes. So absolutely value getting attributed there. And it's really more so on top of the, the capitalized value of the income stream in the form of uh, replacement costs for in-place infrastructure. Good points. Uh, I, yeah, that, I think you're, you're spot on with that. And I feel like that's that was more of a mystery or secret two and three years ago. People have realized the demand for affordable housing has gone up considerably, frankly, because everything else has been more expensive. And COVID really put a lot of shine a light on the need for affordable housing. One, it would behooves me to mention a vacant lot is only a valuable vacant lot if you're legally permitted to put a mobile home on it. So watch your, look at your zoning, look at your setbacks, look at your permit, because I've seen that um, in instances where many instances where people are like, oh, I'm just bringing some homes on here. And I'm like, you can't do that. And they you know, should have called me before instead of after. And we're looking at a park right now that I don't remember the counts, like 50 some of the lots that are vacant are in floodplain. So depending on the municipality, you may not be able to be ever allowed to put a home on there. Or earlier we were talking about, uh, Coleman, you mentioned HUD sets in states like Illinois. Um, this, this particular park in the, has a, because of the floodplain, they have um, flood sets, which I've never actually done one, but I've seen them. But it basically, you know, the water comes in, they want to get the home out of there fast. So the, the underpinnings have like an emergency release. So you can disconnect them and pull the home out faster and take it away in minutes instead of hours in the event of the flood. So those cost more, right? And that's more complicated, less of the installers know how to utilize those. So just another, I, I my team here will often ask me like, what's the answer to this question? And, and they hate this answer from a lawyer, but it's the most common answer is it depends. So how hard is it to install a home? Well, it depends. How valuable is a lot? It depends and depends on a lot of factors. That's why it's good to get a, a group of different perspectives here to hopefully 
share with our audience lots of those hypotheticals and make the world a smarter place. Yeah, the devil's definitely in the detail. <laughs> right, so. All right, guys, next next topic. Um, what's the most homes you brought into one park in one year? I'm just kind of curious how much infill is, is possible um, to maybe inspire our audience. I'll take the lead on that one. Um, we brought in 43 into one park. Uh, it was a mixture of new and used, so it was like 50-50. But yeah, I'm curious what you guys have brought in. Yeah, so so last year at, at Blank Family Communities, we did uh, 35 new homes. Uh, but at a, at a previous company that I was overseeing, we did over 400 in one community in one year. Wow. And wow. yeah, so we had, it was in a really strong, it was off an eight lane highway in Michigan, extremely strong market, single family home value over 300,000. And we had a sales team that would do, they would lease and or sell over 50 houses a month. We'd have six houses in the, the entranceway. And that, that community has since gone and sold at just a, a crazy number. Um, and it was the fourth biggest community in the country. Wow. So cool. that, was, that, was, that was probably the most fun project I've ever had in this industry. I bet. Probably the most stressful too. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got a community here in Kansas City. We brought in about 60 plus or minus. We demoed a couple, brought in about 60, but it was over about a 16 month period. So I kind of start to finish and we did it. So, and that was fast and furious. And that was about five used homes and the rest new. And one tactic that I, I used that I think is helpful here is I, you know, I staged them according, I staged them in a strategic order as to which lots to put them on to basically give people a sense of front yard. And then I'd put a different one in front of it. I would turn them different angles. They weren't all parallel. I mean, different color. I had to make sure, okay, I got a beige one. I'm not going to put a beige one next to it. I'm like a beige, a gray, a white, a black, different color shutters. I put porch, porch models on the corner. So when you turn the street, you're looking at the big, beautiful porch. I put double wides neighborhood set on other wide lots of corners. So really just try to give it an eclectic feel. And then I, I would buy six different homes from from six different manufacturers at a time. So like I didn't have cookie cutter. They were, Hey, look, go pick one. But then I repeated the same six over and over, but it always, it was kind of like different strokes for different folks. I do one with carpet, one with no carpet. So that was, um, that was our, that was our most successful project from a, from an infill perspective, but um, and HUD set, it was in Missouri, which is surprisingly a HUD set state. So that was, um, that's why I spent a lot of money on concrete that year. <laughs> yep. Coleman, yeah. anything you want to add? No, uh, nowhere close to, you know, 400. And uh, that gives me great amounts of anxiety just thinking about <laughs> because it, it really is, um, you know, there's, there's so many moving parts within filling homes from, you know, laying out the lots to the construction teams, especially in a HUD state, making sure they're doing their job correctly with the concrete, actually getting the home on there, getting it decked, getting it AC'd, you know, making sure you got the utilities right. You know, uh, you can order an all electric home and then realize you don't have, you know, the right amperage for that. So there's just so many factors, as you mentioned, picking out the homes that go into it. So uh, 400 in a year is, is, is very, very impressive. Yeah. It's a lot. Well, that would remind me on the electric too. Uh, that's one thing that one tip I give to some people is on if you understand your utilities and you can better understand your utilities if you get an Alta survey even better if you get a table a survey during your due diligence because I identified in this one part this is the park I'm talking about that the gas lines were going to be a problem for bringing in large homes I would have to bring in 60 footers but if I got rid of the gas lines I could bring in 76 footers. And if I got zero setback permission from the city, I could bring in 76 feet because my lots were 76 feet, one inch. So that's what I ended up doing. I got the zoning letter and then I ripped out the gas lines and just ordered all electric homes. So you can only do that so far north. I got a park in Des Moines and I had an all electric home and nobody wanted to buy it because they're like, that's going to cost $500 a month to heat that thing up, up north. But in central Missouri, it's not quite as cold. The, you know, the electric worked out and I was able to shoehorn in more bigger homes, which was why we could sell them faster. All right. What do, what did you guys say makes the market perfect for infill? And maybe what makes it not perfect for infill. Coleman touched on some of this for value of a lot, obviously, 
employment centers, things like that. But is there, are there any other factors that, you know, make it perfect? We've, we know big lots is one of them. Somebody's mentioned great overall market community, whoever wants to jump in and go ahead. If you've got anything that you've noticed from your experiences, that's ah, this is a bad place to bring in homes. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. I would say, you know, making sure your test ad performs really well. Uh, you know, if you're going to be bringing in homes, uh, you know, I think a lot of us do like a lease option, you know, type of arrangement where they're going to, you know, they're not coming up with 30,000 cash to buy the homes, um, especially in the Midwest. But a lot of times you'll have like a, hey, you know, can you do $3,000 as a down payment? And then in your test ads, making sure that the people that are reaching out are not just a, you know, raising their hand saying, hey, I'm interested, but they actually have the $3,000 to put down. Because from experience, people that have $1,000 to put down and people that have $3,000 to put down are a drastically different tenant. And you know, the 3000 is a, a much better community in, in my eyes. That's a great point. I've got a, I got a park right now. We're doing infill on, and we, there's this, this is a small town, like 14,000 people, but it's kind of an affluent small town. We did our test ad. We had like a thousand hits in a week, it blew away everything we've ever had. And there were zero homes for rent in the whole city, like mobile homes, zero available apartments, zero available rental homes, single family zero available. So the demand was through the roof. We brought the home in first home in people followed it to the park. <laughs> Kid you not like so people showed up is when is that one available? Here was the problem is the problem you just mentioned. Hey, I got a 1000. How much you want for that? You want a 1000? You want like two or 3000? We're like, we're gonna want like 20,000. What? For a mobile home? I got a 1000. It's like, all right, all demand is not equal. We had lots of demand, but from and then the lot rents were historically low, you know, all in rents for the homes and the lots were in the 400s. So getting somebody to buy a new home, you're talking 400 just for the payment. So um, that's a used home market for me. So to answer my own question, what makes it a bad market is the same thing Andrew said, you got to make sure that the test is there, but, but then you got to really sift through the demand, which is kind of hard to do yeah. during due diligence because it's just a Facebook and hey, I'm interested. You want to come set up a showing? Yeah. Do you really have the money or they come and say, can you work with me on the deposit? Can you work with me on down payment? Like, no, I mean, you need the money. I'm sorry. We're not going to let you in. Stephen, what do you about you and Coleman? What do you guys for what makes a good market or a bad market? Yeah. So the, the metrics that, that a lot of operators use is how close the, what the single family home value is. Uh, Cause obviously there's the two models in, in manufactured housing are the affordability model and the lifestyle model. So especially in the Midwest, we're all about the affordability model. You know, how, what is the cheapest that we can provide housing? And then the more inexpensive it is compared to the market, the better. You know, what is the average three bedroom apartment going for? You know, how can we compete? And then the third metric would be the population. Um, so it's great that a house is expensive, but how many people are able to, you know, to have that be absorbed from the community. Because if I've got a community with 50 empty lots and the population of the, the town's 5,000, you know, chances are I'm not going to be able to find 50 people that'll meet all of those criteria. And then the last thing is, is the, especially for communities that have not had homes in a long time, is the city going to try to block this transaction? You know, are they going to pull some, and for it, I bet that this is a daily call for you, you know, what uh, what is the city going to tell me is some new law, new, you know, ordinance that I can't, that is a non-conforming use that I cannot bring my mobile home in? The point I, you're in that you're right, Stephen, I, I get that I work on zoning matters on a nearly daily basis and that's part of it. And, and what a lot of times, and I get it, lawyers are expensive, right? So people want, a lot of people will hire us for as small a scope of work as they want, or they think they want, or think they need. And I had one six months ago, we did the title work we did the closing docs we did the syndication we did the contract and i said you want me to do the zoning was, no 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 I, I took care of the zoning with the city we're good they called me last week we're not good and they're discriminating against me because they're the last guy was able to bring in homes and they didn't stop him now they're stopping me and i can't get the electric turned on and well that's a problem we probably should have figured out before you bought the park, because if your business plan depends on infill, if you paid for those vacant lots, paid 30,000 a pad, you might be in a little bit of a pickle. 
if you bought a deal that's stable and that those two or three pads are upside cherry on top, it's not that big a deal. But you buy a deal that's 60% occupied and you need to fill it, that's a problem. So you're right. Coleman, what are your thoughts? I think these guys really hit it. It's uh, it's 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 significant amount of details and study on, you know, what do, what will the market bear? What's our competition from? Uh, I, I love the housing costs. Look at you know, what's the single family housing cost? What's the competition as far as apartments? And then you know, also what is the market from like a location perspective? You know, in one side we've talked about hey, people want bigger houses, and you know. The other side of that is in certain locations where it maybe is a senior community or it's an area that's more dense, where it's a walkable neighborhood, people are willing to accept smaller houses for living closer in. And you kind of see here in Chicago, there's a lot of, you know, metro kind of infill communities where people are selling 1448s and they're selling for cash because to buy anything in that area is $300,000, $400,000 even for a condo. So really kind of do the homework to understand what what, are the, what does the market want in that location? And then also think about what is your business model? Like to your point, Bert, there's certain markets where it's really a used home market. It's not really a new home market for price point standards. Um, there's other ways where, you know, other markets where people really don't want to live in the 60s, 70s kind of, you know, rehabbed home and they really want that new product. So really trying to understand the community, how it fits into the market, what are the market demander, and then what's your kind of competition as far as housing are, are all huge and kind of perpetuating a successful infill. And then also, you know, what's your holding strategy for the asset? Like, is this something, you know, you're trying to fill up to sell or is this a long-term hold? And if it's a long-term hold, you know, you want to try to put your homework in and do it right on the front end if you plan to own that asset for 20 years. I've heard a lot of people talk about setting new homes. When you set a new home, uh, one of my favorite lines is, you know, you want to set that home like it's going to be there for 50 years. You don't want to go back and have to fix it because you cut corners on this, that, or whatever, especially if you're going to hold the asset for a long period of time. That's, that's a good, that last point is one I want to touch on that's good about you know, setting them right. And then if you do it via HUD set, that's pretty much belt and suspenders. And that process real briefly, you know, is, generally concrete below the frost line at where I sit here, it's 36 inches deep, two feet wide by two feet wide piers with cinder blocks stacked on top and then tied down with ground anchors and then an XI system to prevent it from tipping. And then a vapor barrier, basically a big tarp to keep the insulation away. In my market here, to get that home and to get that, that set ready, it's about three to 4,000 for the concrete for single wide and another three to 4,000 to get it installed. If I've got to transport it, there's an additional cost of probably two to three to 4,000. So you could easily be in for north of 10K on a single wide, 50% to 100% more for a double wide. I'm curious in other markets, and I'm in five states, but primarily Missouri and Illinois, both which are HUD. Um, I've got a Kansas park, you know, Iowa parks, but I haven't brought many homes in those. And then um, some Nebraska stuff, I haven't brought many homes in either. So my pricing is on, in this region is kind of in that range. Other portions of the country where you guys are seeing, what is just for our audience, what is what are you guys seeing on kind of a low end and a high end? You know, like back in Illinois, originally we were doing non-HUD sets on used homes. I could get, this is five, six years ago, I could get a home picked up, delivered, installed for three grand um, on the dirt. And that didn't include the utility hookups, but you could get the local guy to do that for a couple hundred bucks. It was, it was pretty cheap. Um, in hindsight, it was probably supposed to be on HUD sets, uh, even though they were used because uh, Illinois has some onerous requirements um, on that. But what are you guys seeing? Did you, is that pricing that I mentioned in line or are you guys seeing considerably higher um, in other portions of the country? And I'll jump in for, so for Michigan, which is a, you know, HUD regulated, we're at about just for the set since COVID's come in for a single, we're, you know, around 8,000. Um, and that's not including any lot modifications. And if you're looking at a community in Michigan, pretty much assume that unless you have peers, you're going to have to redo all of that concrete because it, they mandate six inches of reinforced concrete for any runners and or foundations. Um, but in, you know, in Ohio and Indiana, where it's a lot more lenient than you get, you know, we're still at that 5,000 mark. You know, I got an estimate for 
these few homes that were bringing in in Indiana. And it was, I thought he missed out on some things and it included skirting steps, everything for still for the 5,000 mark, um, which since the change in 2017 in Michigan, you're not even getting close to. Interesting. Yeah, we, uh, we just did some concrete work and it was like five grand a lot just for the concrete work. And then for the installs, uh, it was around 4,000. And, you know, so I, I would say it's a little bit more expensive for than some of the pricing you're getting in your markets. What state, what state is that you're working in? That was in Michigan. Michigan, okay, got it. I was going to say, Ferd, uh, we might need to share some phone numbers, you know, <laughs> off, offline, because that sounds uh, very cheap for what I've seen, you know, and hear from different operators around the country. Um, you know, depending on the size of the home is going to depend on, you know, the number of piers or the pad that's going in. Obviously, the more concrete, the more, the bigger the home, the more expensive it's getting. I would say, you know, Midwest. Then the other thing you got to talk about, like on the set is to a Stevens boy, like, does that include the stairs? The AC is definitely on top of that. Another two to three grand, depending on the size of the home and how big the AC is. Um, but I'm seeing at least like five to eight grand in concrete, depending on the state and how big the home is. And then probably another four to five grand to actually set the home and then ACs and decking. And we haven't even talked about like, does the home have a driveway or not? Mm -hmm. um, on the cheap end, you know, you see some states that you don't need concrete and you can literally do nothing, set them on ABS pads or gravel. And obviously you're, you're saving a lot of a significant amount of money going into the ground with that concrete. So it's, it's certainly a wide range. And then like, I have some clients that own some communities in the West coast too, and a home set with their kind of upgraded skirting, given the requirements, their set with skirting might be eight to 10,000 just to set and skirt the home without any AC. So it's definitely going to be regional based. The more regulations, the farther south you go, uh, excuse me, the farther south you go, less regulation. Obviously, the farther that frost line goes down, the more they're regulating the, the, the set with the even, even hoe. All right. Thanks for the comments. Yeah. And Tacoma, your comment on, on my pricing. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I, I would do, I was doing, I do decks and skirting in house. Mm -hmm. So that was so those, that's not in an air conditioning. We would, we hire out to a pro. So those are not included. Yep. I'm just talking concrete for three to four grand and then install for three to four. And I would do, I would do five concrete at a time. So I don't do a single house. I'll just get them prepped and ready. And then I get some bulk because they get the crew there and they knock out five. They can generally do, two to three doubles in a day and they could do five singles in a day so i got a guy that'll peel off from the big companies like hey squeeze me in a day and he'll, he'll just squeeze in a day and then and i'm pretty flexible and he's pretty flexible where um because i pay a lot of people play net 30 some of the big guys pay net 90 we run checks every day so I'm like, if you do the work today, I'll, I'll put it in the mail tomorrow. So that covers his payroll a little easier where his big guy owes him a hundred grand, but he's got to cover the concrete. Those, the company, the factory wants to get paid every day and he's got to cover the labor every day. So that's been one way that as a smaller operator, we've been able to get some big operator pricing on some stuff is um, pay exceptionally fast. And then it helps that I'm younger, so to speak, than the big fish. He's like, look, I don't know how many parks you're going to own in 10 years. You might be the big fish in 10 years. So why would I turn away your business now? Um, and his son is my age. He's like, look, my son's here. You can work with my son 20 years from now. So um, we've had a guys that we've, we've sent around traveling. I bought a park from a guy that had a concrete business that did it for the retailers. And he was even cheaper, but he was real, real difficult guy to work with. So we actually never hired him, um, but he's out of Illinois. And he was like $75 a pier um and generally got about 21 peers on a 1680 so he was pretty reasonable um and, and legit skilled guy he was he, he was worth 10 million dollars i mean that's his concrete business was super successful um all right guys um next question how do you select the manufacturers you work with um do you obviously there's a geographic component that you're not going to be buying homes from completely all over the country and then there's a market-based component um, based on the quality and the pricing point, but uh, there's a lot of options out there. A lot of good options. I've not bought from, I've probably bought from 10 manufacturers, but there's 10 more. I just haven't got around to give it a try and I may never. So I'm curious who you guys like, if you're willing to share that and, or what goes into the decision, decision hopper there. 
Andrew, you want to tackle this one? Yeah, I'll jump in and, and go first. I mean, I I think it's heavily based on location, you know, because transportation costs are, can get really expensive really fast. Um, so that's that weighs heavily into our decision. Um, we've done uh, a lot of homes through Legacy uh, because they have, uh, I think they, they get some homes out of the Anderson plant, um, Anderson Homes, and we've also gotten some direct from Anderson. Um, so that's that's kind of where we are. We, we like uh, Legacy because they offer the, the financing in-house, and then uh, we've gotten some good quality from them uh, after we paid for some of the upgrades. You know, we, have, we, we didn't just buy like the, the bottom tier, you know, as it comes out of the factory, we make sure to get some upgrades. Uh, and that's, that's what we've gone with. Great. Steven, yeah. you mentioned Champion is you buy a lot. Is that, is that your primary source? The, my primary source of homes is, is Champion Topeka. Um, and they have, I believe they do the most volume of anything, uh, any floor per, floors per day. You know, I, I know that they're over 30 a day um, and they do a, offer a variety of BOG drywall and different price point options. And, uh, and the service department of the manufacturer is extremely important. Like with Legacy, for example, we've ordered some Legacy homes for Ohio and they really stretched themselves and the product was absolutely perfect for the market, but to get it serviced out there, I mean, they're just so far away. Um, so that's, so availability for, for service and then just ability to, you know, provide homes is the biggest, you know, factor, um, you know, in today's world. Good, good points. Coleman, any thoughts? I think these guys nailed it. You know, geographic proximity to keep, uh, keep transport costs down is certainly a huge factor. And then these days, if you want new homes, just the availability to actually get them becomes the second factor. And, ultimately trying to find what, you know, from a price point perspective is going to work for your market. Those are the three biggest factors in selecting a manufacturer. Good points. Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me was at first was testing my market. Um, I didn't know if it could, what, what brands it could handle. So I bought from, I've bought from Topeka, Topeka champion plant. I bought from Benton Topeka, the Benton champion plant. Um, they have a Commonwealth and they have, um, was the other brand I bought from them? A couple of darn blank. They got the Redmond Advantage. They have a nice porch porch model. That's Redmond's last champion. That's a higher price home. So I've really got a. It's like I'm a loss leader for me. I put it on corner lots that look good, um, but it, I generally sell it at a loss. As a as a replacement to that, I've gone with some adventure homes. Adventure is kind of spinoff, kind of smaller brand, but they've got some. I think they got some nice houses. They're a little more expensive than they're at the base level champion or Clayton product. I really liked the Clayton Independent out of Waco. I bought a lot of that house. Um, they jacked the transport up, so I ended up switching more and going to True Plants out of Hackleburg in Lynn, Alabama. And I can get the satisfaction, the Marvel and the, um, the Pit Victory Plus out of there, the singles and the doubles. And a lot of people knocked the True Homes. I sold a lot of True Homes in 2019. I probably sold 30 True Homes in one park. And and they were they were higher quality than some of the some of the champions, some of the Clayton, some, I was surprised. The floor plan was different. So I was a big fan of them. Um, those have been the ones I've mostly gone with. I've bought some Clayton's out of Wakaroos, Indiana. They got a nice model. Um, it's up North. So they, they're kind of higher quality, you know, it's more of the sheetrock and backsplash and stuff like that. But in the mid Missouri and area, it's been harder to sell them at the right price point. Um, there's a couple other plants that I've tried that, um, haven't liked as much. So, so was, but I probably won't bash them too bad right here, but all the ones I've, I've bought from the ones I've mentioned and been pretty pleased. Um, I like to, I like to get the ones with some light sconces and window elevations and embellishments on the, on the front end. If it's on a corner lot, if it's not on a corner lot. I pretty much just go with the true home down the middle. Um, pretty inexpensive um, and go with space over high quality sunshine homes are stupid expensive. Um, they're two by six. So they're high quality. I had to put, I had to pay um, two and a half times the normal amount of concrete for a sunshine home, because in addition to piers uh, underneath the I-beams, you have to do an additional set of piers around the perimeter because the home weighs so much. It was like five times, like ruined my yard. It's like five times heavier than the rest of them. And I had to put 48 piers 
on a single wide home. Wow. Including a couple of big ones that are like 5,000 pound piers. So that'll, I will publicly say that'll be the last sunshine home I ever pay for concrete on. Um, so live, live and learn. I didn't know that, you know, didn't think about it that much. Um, next question for you guys. Do you sell or do you rent or terms or, or, or all the combination? And is there a preference? And there's some guys, I talked to a guy this morning. He's like, we are park owned home model all the way. Most people are not park owned home all model. They, they prefer to be tenant owned home, but it's generally a lot easier to rent a home than sell a home. So occupancy is what occupancy is with some caveats that I'm sure we'll touch on, but what do you guys prefer and, and what decision points go into whether you're going to sell or rent a home? Coleman, you want to take this one first? Yeah, sure. It's uh, uh, a million factors that go into that decision. And, um, you know, to start, I think, you know, it depends on what the market craves, you know, some, some, some markets you see want more heavily rentals from a pure execution standpoint. If you're a small operator, it's much easier to just rent a home because you own it and you can move someone in to actually sell a home in most States. You start to get more issues with like dealer licensing. Do you need one? Don't you need one? If I only do a few homes, I fall under the limit. Um, as far as like documentation standpoint, it's harder to sell a home, but I think a lot of people would agree, you know, when you sell homes, you typically have uh, a little bit more sticky resident than if you straight rent them. Um, that being said from like, also from a rental standpoint, you know, I know a lot of people in the industry that, that like renting new homes because they're mostly in good order. They get some depreciation benefits to them. It's easy. And, um, they don't really have a lot of problems with their new homes in terms of you know, people tearing them up if they do an okay job. So I think the answer comes down to the market and then how seasons is the operator. If this is your like first park or your second park and you're really trying to get your arms around it, you know, renting is good in that it's easy. You have control in some states, you know, you have more control over what the tenant can do. If you have a problem tenant, if you own the home to, you know, evictions, et cetera, et cetera. But if you really, you know, want to go towards the land lease model, that's, that's great as well. But there's a lot of factors that go into that in terms of like dealer licensing, compliance, paperwork. Um, and then also, you know, one thing we really haven't covered on this, this talk at some point is like, how are you capitalizing all these homes? Like, are you buying them all for cash? Are you doing it through 21st? Are you using a bank credit facility? Did you raise the extra money from your investor? Cause that's, that's the, uh, a huge piece that we kind of see is like buying new homes gets really capital intensive. Um, you know, how do you do that to scale? So that's just some, uh, comments that, uh, pop into the brain in no particular order. Yes, sir. Yeah. Coleman hit a, a lot of it just right on the head and, and something else is, you know, the ability to, if you're selling these houses, you know, what ability do you offer for your residents to get financing? You know, if you want to sell, and this is just, we're talking more than just ones and twos, you know, if, are you offering recourse financing? Because if not, then it's for a lot of our residents, you know, they're not going to be able to get traditional chattel financing on their own. So it comes to a point, if I have to fill 20 lots, am I actually going to be able to get that financing? And then if I'm going to have to sign recourse as an owner or operator, you know, would it be, uh, is it such a bad thing to rent that home instead? Because then I have greater control over my asset. I can do monthly inspections. I can, you know, if I go in and see a bunch of holes in my, in my wall, I can charge them now. Whereas if I'm signing recourse and something happens to that home, you know, I lose a lot of control. And then the last thing that is, you know, it's the, the speed in which we are trying to infill. The faster you want to infill these communities, the more rentals you're going to have to implement. Um, and then also is the return on the home portion of the rent. So, you know, you sell the home, that's a one-time hit. Uh, you know, hopefully it's a profit center for you, but in today's market, it often couldn't be break even at best. Um, whereas that home rent will give you in some cases that, that positive little boost that could make or break a deal potentially. So we're, we're mainly fans of a, of a hybrid model. Yeah, I think these guys, you know, hit it hit it on the head there. Uh, I think like, like you mentioned earlier for, it depends, you know, uh, we've done a little bit of each, but it, it depends. And we've done some of each, but we would prefer, you know, a fully tenant owned home community. Uh, but it's just what path do we have to take to get there? 
Reed, I think you guys hit all of it. The, the one thing that one thing maybe extra I'll add, and this was kind of a pain point for me. Um, I had earlier on in my deal cycle, I had envisioned one day refinancing with agency debt and getting off the land loan recourse. And I was told that my percentage of rental homes did not include homes sold on terms. And I was told my rental homes percentage was uh, higher than it really was. I got time to refinance and I had, I owned too many houses. Either I owned them as rentals or I owned them as sold on terms. And that was going to, by rule, preclude me from going from off a bank, off an agent, off a local bank loan to an agency loan. So I had to quickly convert and pound on doors to, hey, you want to buy your house? Here's what you need. Here's the, we'll give you a rent credit. Here's 2000 for your down payment out of your rentals. Here's the application for 21st or PEP or whomever. Fill this bad boy out and get this thing bought. We'll even knock off a thousand bucks right now. Um, and it, it ended up working out fine that we got the homes moved. But um, I, that's my bigger concern if, uh, of the hybrid model. I agree it's, it's the, probably the best strategy because it's not as realistic to go to the ideal strategy of tenant-owned homes only because it'll be it's slow to get the infill. But we got to be ever vigilant as to what's the global business plan. And if it involves refinance with agency debt, or perhaps even sell to the next guy who's going to use agency debt, that percentage of park homes needs to be generally below 35%. Um, I know UMH was recently able to get a uh, exception to that, 100% park on home financing, but um, I'm not UMH and neither are you. So we got to play by the rest of us got to play by a different set of rules, which we call the rules. Um, so that's just another thing. But I think Coleman, you made good points on the retail license stuff and then um, cash for financing buying. I'm curious on, are you guys using cash to buy homes or are you using a line of credit? Andrew mentioned financing through legacy. Um, and then I think for, we've touched on the, the exit strategy of the homes that we, the hybrid is kind of, often the way of the, the way that the world goes, but any, I personally have bought homes with mostly with lines of credit from local banks. And then sometimes local bank will give us unfavorable line of credit. It's like, I have a park now. I just got 10 free houses from the school district, four walls, nothing in the middle, but they're free if we take them off the school district. So we moved them off site. We're putting in the rooms, we're putting in the kitchens, we're putting in the plumbing. So I'm going to have a lot of renovation cost, but I got no basis in the home, but I didn't pay for the home, so I can't get any debt on it. So I'm having to front cash, half a million dollars in cash on park-owned homes. That's no picnic, right? Um, but there's not debt on that, um, and you can't get so that's become a problem, so to speak. That so the, as GP, we just put up the cash as a line of we were a line of credit. Um, but did it get like you know, like all things? There's a finite amount of resource. So getting lines of credit through 21st is a cash program. Legacy has a program. Is there anything else you guys are using besides the 21st or Legacy? Um, or, or, and or are you guys using those or using lines of credit? Or, or as Coleman mentioned, are you raising the equity at the forefront as part of the transaction? Jump in there. Um, it's, it's kind of a hybrid model uh, for the new homes, uh, you know, mainly Legacy's financing program. But then on the used homes, we're raising the equity up front primarily for those. The only other program that we're really utilizing is Triad. Um, they've got a really good line. And I know with 21st and Triad, they've both made it so easy that they've got your inventory line. And then if you, if you sell the house, they'll be able to put it on a separate line. And then if you lease the house, they'll be able to put it on another line. So it really gives you a lot of flexibility on which route to go. Yeah, my, my knock on Triad has been, it's harder to get somebody approved to buy. Yeah. Um, they, you can get off the recourse or the repurchase obligation, which is ideal, but it depends on the market. I have, a, they have pretty high standards for credit score. And I had somebody, she had a great credit score. This was awkward. I got my marketing. Here's the payments 20 years, but this is only the payment. This is pending bank approval. Here's the loan app. She did 21st. Their interest rates were high. She was just crazy. I'm not paying 9% interest. I got a 750 credit score. I said, try, try it. You got that good credit score. They'll probably approve you. They did. They said, you're too old for a 20-year loan. We think you're going to die in 12 years, so we'll give you a 12-year loan, So, which then made her payment higher. So the, the, the payments that I market, even though I said subject to bank approval, asterisk, I'm not the bank, bank has to approve you. 
I couldn't deliver the payments for because the interest rate was too high on 21st and Triad did a 12 year instead of a 20 year loan because she was in her sixties. So I, I was surprised that they could even do, I was like, why are you guys doing 12? They're like, cause she's going to die. This is like, she's not that old, but it was a surprise. Coleman, any others you see out there? Yeah, Triad is definitely the, the other large one. And they do have other programs that they're trying to roll out. I know they're rolling out some, uh, I think what they refer to as their bronze program, so lower credit scores. And then um, on a few of my small deals, I, I use uh, Bankline. And we kind of uh, buy the homes and then either rent them or um, you know use Triad. Triad does have a COP program where you can define the credit box that you're willing to fill and they'll write and service the paper. Or, uh, you know, I know a lot of people are using rent credit programs or lease loans, but predominantly, you know, borrowing from banks uh, with a personal guarantee on homes. Yeah, and there's also, and there's, there's several others, Credit Human and Cascade and Vanderbilt. Um, I'm just, I've done less with those guys, but, and we've done sometimes what Andrew does, if they're used homes or we, if we have a decent feel for the infill schedule, we may just raise it as part of the equity raise. Um, this recent deal where I got 10 free homes, I would plan on buying 10, free, 10 homes at once and spending 20 cash on each of them. So that wasn't in the plan, but I'm like, free home falls in your lap. All double. Well, I think that's, yeah. that's a big point, right? Like you, you know, thinking people should think about that on the front end, if they have an infill execution strategy is that even with like bank lines of credit to buy new homes, they don't advance all the dollars, right? They might advance 80% of the invoice or hundred percent of the invoice and then you still got to have cash on hand to actually set the homes or transport them. So if you got an infill program, you know, think about that on the front end. So you know really how much capital you need to raise and, and uh, to execute on whatever your strategy is. Absolutely. And, and, that is the, and the, the decision of sell versus rent goes into that decision matrix. I mean, like this park here, I've got about 15 homes that I just brought in. And some of them are complete renovations. Some of them are, we bought them for 20,000 and we got a loan for 15, but then I got to spend more for the set. If I rent them, sure, I get 750 a month, but it's going to take four years before I recycle that capital. So that's the best part. The last deal I did, I had a 500,000 line of credit. I bought $3 million of homes on it in about a year and a half, but it's the same 500,000 because I was selling more than I was renting. But in a market where rentals make sense, you do have that problem of like, you're adding value to the land asset, but from a cash flow perspective, you're pouring and bleeding cash to then get coupon clipping later in life. And depending on balloons and interest rate and amortization and loan thresholds, it, it, it does uh, influence the rest of the global business plan. All right, guys, this is a ton of information that we're sharing. I really appreciate it. Any, anybody have any closing comments or thoughts or tips? And, and if not, at least tell us where people can find you uh, after this call. Uh, yeah, so you can, you can find us at blankfamilycommunities.com. And the, the closing thoughts for, with infills are that it, they're by far the most complex part of our business. And you really do get a hang of it once you start going at them. Um, but don't underestimate the auxiliary costs of bringing in a house. A lot of people underwrite. And then the, the time that it, don't underestimate the time that it takes to actually get that home occupied. I see people underwrite deals where they say, we're going to get six houses delivered in June. And then they put income on those houses in June. I don't know any, anybody that will get delivered and occupy a home in one month. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> um, you can, you can find me at keelteam.com, just K-E-E-L team.com. My last piece would be on small lots. I think there's a lot of parks out there right now that are up for sale and have, you know, what looks like considerable amount of upside through vacant lots, but they would only fit homes that were, you know, 12 foot wide, uh, older homes. So highly recommend you do the due diligence up front to know what size of a home is going to fit on those lots. And uh, like Ferd mentioned earlier, make sure that the zoning will allow you to bring in new homes because there's many a, a, many a zoning committees that are mandating uh, a year, a minimum year requirement, or you can only bring in homes that are you know, 10 years old or newer. And if you have small lots, you're, you're likely going to have a really hard time filling those. So, 
Yeah, awesome being here with you guys. Coleman, K-O-L-M-A-N at sunstonerea.com. And uh, appreciate the opportunity. I think you guys kind of killed it. And, uh, you know, if this is your first deal, I don't know that you should jump into the deep end of uh, heavy infill unless you really, you know, just love to immerse yourselves in all the pains. Because um, it is a, it's a struggle. But uh, great being here with you guys. And for, thanks for, for organizing for us all. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having us. us yeah, on thanks a, I for, know. <laughs> no, this that's a great point. That this this is the infill is not for the faint of heart, but uh, it's where the values added, and where the values added is where the money will follow. So, uh, really appreciate your guys' wisdom and expertise on this. Uh, really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Ferd. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.